place every Monday from 11 to 1. Uh, Lily already mentioned the Campus Movement Weekend, March 3rd through 5th. Really encourage you to take advantage of as many opportunities as possible. Get to know the people in the room. And um, as we've been talking about the last two weeks, just igniting you guys as missionaries, people who are divinely, sovereignly, by the hand of God, placed on campus here. If you're not a student here, whatever spaces and places you find yourself, you're not there by accident. God has a plan for your life. So it's not what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, I just want to remind you guys, we've been talking about the last couple weeks. But what I am going to talk about tonight is God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. If already you're like, oh, I don't need this message, you probably especially need this message. Like, I constantly need a fresh dose of humble pie. And I don't know about you, but the more I try to be humble, the more I actually realize how prideful I am. It's so insidious. I mean, we need God's grace just to be humble so we can receive grace, right? Like, like at every turn, we need so much help from God. But I want to give you guys a couple of verses because this is like a major theme all throughout the Bible, that God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. But here's just a quick sampling of scriptures, and then we're going to jump into Esther because I really believe that the contrast between Mordecai and Haman is like almost a parable that just perfectly illustrates, although it's a true story from history, this principle of God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. So here's a couple of Quick samplings of uh, just scriptures that directly speak to this. Proverbs 29.3, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Mm. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, mm. and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Right. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Right. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. James 4, 6 through 10. But he gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. How many are grateful for that? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, all of you close yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hands, that he may lift you up in due time. Matthew 18, 4, red letters in your Bible, Jesus speaking, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. One of my favorite meditations, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Get this. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God. So again, this contrast between humility and pride is a repeated theme throughout all of Scripture. But as I said, if you want to turn to the book of Esther, I'm going to be kind of going through literally like a survey of the whole book of Esther, so we'll go kind of map it case. But if you just want to be able to turn as I'm reading different scriptures, you could just start in Esther 1. 
and I'm really going to just kind of like overview the story, and then we meet at the end of Mordecai, Esther 2, and the beginning of Esther 3, these two characters, Mordecai and Haman, and then we'll start drawing out the contrast. But what's going on here is that King Xerxes, he's the king of Persia and Media, he basically for 180 days, which is around six months, just opens up the vast wealth of his kingdom and just invites people to come in and just, just see the vast wealth and the luxury and the liberality of his just you know, how he lives, wine, all this. And he throws this crazy seven-day feast where everybody from the lowest to the highest can come in. There's unlimited wine being given out. Every wine is like especially uh, made wine glass. And meanwhile, Queen Vashti has this celebration going on at the same time. And on the seventh day, basically, in my Scottish translation, when he's very drunk, he's like, hey, Queen Vashti looks good. Bring her in in front of all the people, and I want her to showcase her beauty to everybody. And she says no. Now, the king in his high spirits when he's drunk doesn't like the fact that she rejected a direct order to come in and present her beauty in front of all the people. So he starts asking his advisors, what can we do? Like, what does the law say that we should do? How should we act in this, in this situation? And basically they say, you have to depose of the queen because if word gets out that she disobeyed you and you're the highest in the land, then women everywhere are going to stop obeying their husbands. So this is like an abuse of the patriarchy, right? This is like, I can only imagine the feminists, the feminists in this day were like, what? Like, and so he disposes of the queen, and then it says after a while, it doesn't directly say that he's sad, but he starts reflecting on what he's done with Queen Vashti, and some of his attendants come up with this idea, how about we go survey the land, we find all the beautiful women, we'll put them in your harem, and you'll find the most beautiful of all of them. I know this is kind of messed up. This is... But you're going to find the most beautiful of all of them. You'll put the crown on her head. She'll be the queen. Well, we meet this woman named Hadassah, which is actually Esther's name, but she also goes by Esther. She's an orphan, okay? So Esther is an orphan who's been brought into exile. She's originally a Jew, and she's being taken care of by her cousin, who I imagine is much older. He's actually adopted her. So we automatically know that Mordecai is a righteous man. He has this father's heart to care for the orphan. Right? So immediately we know that he's this righteous man, he's this upstanding man. And Esther gets taken into uh, the harem. She starts getting these beauty treatments, and she starts, you know, she is one of the most beautiful in the land. She catches the king's eye, he puts the crown on her head, he throws this big celebration. And Mordecai is almost daily sitting in the gates. If you know anything from ancient history, if somebody who sits in the gate is somebody who has a level of authority of somebody who probably was an elder in the city of somebody who had a position of influence so we know that mordecai has some influence in the city the end of chapter two we mordecai is he's sitting in the king's gates i'm just set up this story but mordecai is he's sitting at the king's gates catches wind of a plot to assassinate the king and he passes it on to queen esther who takes it to the king and that's like the end of that story his life is spared those two guys get killed but we never hear anything about mordecai being rewarded and he doesn't go looking for it. He's not like, hey, give me credit. Like, I just saved your life. There should at least be, like, one of these crazy parties for me. And he's just content that he, like, even though, even though this is the king who is exiled in, right? Even though he's there as an exile, he catches wind that there's an assassination attempt as a righteous man spares the king's life by passing this information on, right? In the next chapter, we hear about this guy, Esther chapter 3, Haman, who gets promoted to the second highest position in the kingdom. And he's coming out of the gate one day, and all the nobles and officials, whenever he walks by, they bow their faces and they pay him homage. But Mordecai will not pay him homage. And it doesn't tell us directly why, but he won't bow down. And it may be because he was an uh, Agagite, which was like a descendant of the Amalekites, which were like Israel's oldest sworn enemies when they were coming out of Egypt. But 
Long story short, Mordecai won't bow. And although Haman is the second highest in the land, although he has everybody laying on their faces in front of him, when you're prideful, the one person who won't get on their face in front of you will agitate your heart. And so I want you to see Haman representing this almost like Satan incarnate figure who devises this wicked plot. It's not enough for him, it says, to just birth a plot on how to kill Mordecai, but he, when he finds out that he's a Jew, he wants to kill all the Jewish people. Wow. Y'all know that like all throughout the Old Testament, these kind of like anti-Christ shadowy figures like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, these different guys have this thing to wipe out the Jews. Wow. And I want to say too that if there's two things that you want to like paint a giant target for spiritual warfare on your chest. Think two things that are really close to God's heart that if you will care about in this generation, not that you're like trying to attack spiritual warfare, but Satan hates two things a lot, the orphan and Israel. God has a heart for Israel. God has a heart for the widow and the orphan. And Mordecai is a man of righteousness who stands up in the gap for both of these things. And he becomes like the centerpiece of this satanic man's rage because he won't bow down to the enemy of God's people, wow. right? So he births this plot to basically, he wants to get rid of Mordecai. So the next day he goes into the king and he's like, hey, what can we do to cast these lots? And he sets a day, puts it in royal writing, puts it in the king's hand and then seals it with the king's signet ring, that there's gonna be a day that's like far off where basically all the people can come and just slaughter the Jews. It's like, Old Testament Holocaust, basically, and they can plunder all of their stuff. And the word obviously gets out to the Jews, and it gets out to Mordecai, and they're like, what in the world? And there's just the sound of weeping and wailing and mourning and confusion. What is going on all throughout the kingdom, right? So that's where we pick up our story. So I want you again to see that Haman, from the beginning, he uses his newfound authority. He's brought to the position of the second highest in the kingdom, and he uses it to build himself up and to oppress others. Okay? Authority, influence, and quote-unquote greatness is not bad in and of itself. It's a question of how we use it. Mm -hmm. Haman gets promoted, and he immediately uses it to make himself great and to oppress other people. Mm -hmm. Okay? So when Mordecai learns of the edict, he tears his clothes, he dresses himself in sackcloth, which is basically, it's kind of like a potato sack. But honestly, it's like uncomfortable material that would just remind you of your discomfort as you bow yourself before God. So lay it humbly yourself. And ashes, and he begins mourning for his people. In other words, Mordecai immediately humbles himself. Esther 4, verses 1 through 5 say this. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes, and when Esther's eunuchs uh, and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. He and all this, she sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Pathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. I want you, this is important, and we're going to see how this thematically develops throughout the story, but she sends him better clothes to He's like, no, like, I'm not going to wear the nicer clothes until this is, like, resolved. I'm going to wear the sackcloth and ashes. And I want you to know there's, like, three levels that I'm going to share this message on. So, like, this is for the person who has no relationship with God, 
like on the level of salvation, the way that we need to humble ourselves before God to enter into the right relationship with God. For the person who's personally trying to grow in their relationship with God, that this continual response of humility is what virtue grows out of, and this is how we put on Christ-like character. But also for a group of people, like we've been talking about living on mission, who are looking at the nation around them and seeing the spiritual death and decay and recognize that there's something through a humble response that catches the eye of God and can save a nation. Right. right? So this is not just about, we need to stop listening to Christian messages. We should listen with ears for ourselves. What do you want of me, God? But there's this we response too in a generation. And as people who represent a city, if you live in Charlotte, then like, man, you you have an inheritance. And Jesus has an inheritance in this city that we have to be concerned about, right? Um, so Mordecai shares with Esther. She's trying to find out. She hasn't heard yet what's going on, uh, why he's acting this way, and then exhorts her to use her position to spare the lives of her people. Esther 4, 12 through 14 says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. Mm. Mordecai reminds Esther that her position of influence and prominence has not been given to her for her own sake. Right. I'm going to say that again. Her position of influence and prominence was not so that she could be the beauty queen of media and Persia. Yeah. It's more than that. Yeah. It's more than that. Yeah. When God promotes you, it's not for your own sake. Yeah. If she doesn't use her position to stand up for her people, she will perish, but God will raise up deliverance from somewhere else. Yeah. She had to realize why God had placed her where she was. Humility recognizing that it's not just about us. Godly influence is always for a purpose beyond ourselves. Yeah. In a generation where an influencer is actually a job. Literally, your job, what do you do for a job? An influencer. <laughs> like, I tell people what cereal to eat, and they eat it, right? It's like, <laughs> I tell people what to pick up at Target, they go buy it, right? Like, <laughs> Godly influence is always given for an intentional purpose, and it's not about you, yeah. right? We need to lay hold of that for a generation. Yeah. Pride says, now I want you to hear the three different responses. Pride says, I'm awesome. And this is all about me. False humility says, I have nothing to offer. Offer. There's nothing I can do. Okay, some of us think that's humility. That's false humility. False humility is somebody asks you to step up and go, ah, no, 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 I could never do anything. I've got nothing to offer. That's false humility, and sometimes that's actually insulating yourself to protect your reputation. Right? True humility says, there's nothing I can do apart from God. Therefore, I must depend wholly upon him. Right? Pride says, I'm awesome. This is all about me. False humility says, there's nothing I can do. I'm so unworthy. I have nothing to offer to a generation. True humility says, I can't do anything apart from God. I believe he's given me talents. He's given me resources. He's given me certain things that he's just hardwired inside of me. If I will connect that to the power source, to God, if I will get humble, if I will get dependent on God, he can use me. Right? So Esther 4, 15 and 16 says, Then Esther sent this reply, this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Mm -hmm. 
What I want you to see is that false humility in this situation was said, I'm just a female. And in this generation, don't you know that I don't really have a whole lot of authority? I can't do anything. Pride would have said, all right, you're right. I'm so fired up. Let's go do it right now. True humility said, you're right. God's given me a position of prominence and influence in the kingdom. Let's not eat or drink anything for three days and empty ourselves of all our strength. Embrace voluntary weakness so that our strength will evidently be from God. And I'll take the risk. I will take the risk. And if I perish, I'll perish. But I'm going to say that I can do something if I connect myself to God. That's true humility, right? So meanwhile, while all this is going on, Mordecai and Esther are sending messages back and forth. Kind of God's uh, undercover redemption plan is working uh, meanwhile, Haman is becoming increasingly filled with pride and rage towards Malachi, or Mordecai. And here's how this is going on. Esther goes to the king, and she's wise, and probably, I believe, strategy that was dropped on her from heaven. And instead of just immediately coming out with her request, she throws banquets, and she says, I don't want you to come, and I don't want Haman to come. And, you know, you, if I go to the but these are the people I'm specifically asking to come. The first time, it's awesome. And she doesn't even bring it up at all. The king's like, hey, ask me for anything, even up to half the kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And she's kind of just like biding her time. Not that she, I don't think that she's scared, but I think she's just going about this wisely. And she's like, let's do the same thing again tomorrow. And I just want you to invite Haman. Haman goes home and he's so filled with pride. He's boasting about the position he's been given. He's boasting about the fact that he's the only of the king's attendants who's been like invited by name. But then on his way home, who would he see other than Mordecai? And he's just so filled with pride. He's like, all my happiness is drained. The second I see Mordecai, it's like all of it is gone. I can't be happy so long as that man is alive. Wow. So he goes home to his attendants, and they birth this, again, satanic, demonic plot. They say, why don't you set up a 50-foot pole and have Mordecai impaled? Wow. And Haman gets happy. He's like happy at this idea. He's like, that's a great idea. And I'm actually going to go early before the banquet tomorrow, and I'll share this with the king, and because the king loves me, he's probably going to be all about it. Wow. But check out what was going on. That night, so while this, this is how I want you to realize that when you're praying, and when you're seeking the face of God, no matter what it looks like in the natural, there's providential things happening wow. beneath the surface. Yeah. The same night that the fast is starting, the same, like the same, they're already, the people are already fasting. Esther's going before, I guess it's not the same night that started, but the fast has been going on. The people are seeking the face of God. They realize we're going to perish if God doesn't answer with salvation and breakthrough for a nation. It says in Esther, uh, this would be chapter 6. I'm actually going to read this whole chapter. It says, that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered that the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. On the night before, Haman's going to show up and birth this plot to impale Mordecai on a pole. The king can't sleep. He's agitated in his sleep. There's like a holy disruption. So he's saying like, hey, come read me a bedtime story. And the chronicle that they read, because it was recorded when Mordecai gave the message to Esther that there's an assassination plot Mordecai's about to get his reward that he didn't go seeking for himself. Wow. Think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. And he says, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. And his nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. 
the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court, outer court of the palace, to speak to the king about an alley Mordecai in the pole he had set up for him. Yeah. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court, bring him in. And the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought for himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let the robe that the man the king delights to honor and leave him on the horse through the cities, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Wow. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. He's literally planning the celebration for the guy he cannot stand. Can you imagine when the word Mordecai went? He didn't hear the rest of that sentence. He was like, Can you imagine when he said Mordecai? Do not neglect anything you have recommended. The king says to him, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe. You just picture him just eating the humble pie. <laughs> he rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man. <laughs> Can you picture him saying that out loud like a proclamation? Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that happened to him. His advisors and his wife said to him, since Mordecai, Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. Whoa. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried. Haman awaits the banquet as prepared. Mordecai clearly ends up receiving the honor Haman was planning for himself. Wow. God's providence is at work all throughout this story, causing mm -hmm. the king to find the secret record. God is the one who exalts in due season. Yeah. Yeah. God is the one who exalts in due season. You don't have to try to seek how to honor yourself, how to get recognition for the things that you're doing. You may not even receive it this side of eternity. Yeah. Wow. But all the better, actually, because I believe it's like receiving like eternal, you know, yeah. interest as we wait on it. So in Esther 7, the next day for the banquet, Esther actually uncovers Haman's plot to the king, and Haman ends up impaled on a pole he's had set up for Mordecai. So if you want to read Esther 7 on your own, King Xerxes like flies off in a rage and basically has Haman impaled on the same pole that he had already set up the wow. that Mordecai wow. was going to hang on. It's read in Esther 8, 1 through 2. It says, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. <laughs> Esther receives Haman's estate, a plot of land, and then appoints Mordecai over it. Mordecai would go on to write an edict in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, which turned Haman's plot against the Jews on its head. It basically, because the king's order couldn't directly be reversed, but that went forward in his hand and sealed the signet ring, 
could be reversed. Wow. It gave the Jews permission, though, to fight and defend themselves and to plunder whoever would come against them. Wow. And actually, all the Jews like start rejoicing. They start celebrating. The same people who are weeping and mourning are rejoicing the next day and celebrating wow. that God has begun to initiate wow. their deliverance. Wow. Esther 8, 15 through 17 says, When Mordecai led the, left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple, and a purple robe of fine linen. Remember earlier when he refused the garments? Wow. It's like, man, in the season of distress, he would not take off the sackcloth and ashes. Now he's coming out wearing royal garments. Mm -hmm. At the city, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. Every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Mm, wow. People are adopting the worship of Yahweh. Wow. <laughs> Grown men are having physical procedures done to become Jewish. Wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna like get too graphic. Yeah. <laughs> to become Jews because God is beginning to turn the tables. That's good. And God is beginning to work salvation through the Jews even to the people surrounding them. Oh, yeah. So Mordecai again leaves the king's presence wearing royal garments, and the Jews who were previously mourning rejoice, are rejoicing and celebrating. Here's the beauty. In Esther 10, 3, it says, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank. This is the last verse of the, of the story of Esther. Was second in rank to King Xerxes, pre preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Influence is not bad. Being humble is not refusing to let God promote you. Remember that the disciples even asked Jesus in different seasons, like, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have your seats of honor? And he never rebuked them for asking who is the greatest. What he did was redefine greatness. That they would use their influence, that they would use their position, that they would use their quote-unquote greatness for the welfare of other people to go alone and to serve other people. If God's going to promote you, it's not so that you look awesome, it's so that you can go alone like Jesus and serve other people. Right? That's good. But here's, here's the real kicker. Again, God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. In this story, God saves Esther, Mordecai, and all the people from the plans of the enemy, and he inverts the weapon of the enemy to destroy the one who is seeking to kill them. Wow. The very pole that was intended to bring their ruin became a symbol of their deliverance. The king had the guilty impaled in place of the innocent, but in the gospel, Christ the innocent one is crucified in place of the guilty. I'm going to say that again. In this story... The symbol that should have destroyed them, should have sealed the, the death, destruction of Mordecai, got inverted and became a symbol of deliverance. Right? The one who had birthed the evil plot is impaled on that pole, and all the Jews knew that the beginning of our deliverance is upon us. In this story, the guilty one, Haman, is rightfully impaled on the pole, and the innocent go free. But in the gospel, Christ the innocent one is crucified wow. in place of the guilty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Something I've noticed with Bible stories is that we always read ourselves as the good guy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Almost invariably. Right. And I almost guarantee all of you were trying to like take, I'm going to be like Mordecai. I'm the Mordecai of this story. I'm the, if you're a female, I'm the Esther of this story. But in the gospel, everybody is guilty. Yeah. And I'm thinking about a story in Luke 18 specifically where Jesus tells a parable and to correct people who thought they were righteous in their own eyes, he says, two men go into the temple to pray. One of the Pharisees lifts his eyes to heaven and he says, I'm so glad 
that I'm not like. And he starts listing all the different people that he's not like. And the next guy stands off at a distance and he's beating his chest and he dare not even look up to heaven. And he's like, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And Jesus asked, which of these do you think went home justified before God? Remember I was at coffee with my friend Sam one time and he said, how often do you read that story and say, I'm so glad that I'm not like a Pharisee? The Pharisee says, I'm so glad I'm not like all the sinners. Yeah. <laughs> you read the story and you say, I'm so glad I'm not like a Pharisee. Wow. Right? And this is how we read our Bibles. Yeah. And I want to tell you, God has a plan for you to be like a Mordecai. He has a plan for you to be like an Esther. But if you don't yet know the redemption, the grace, that only comes when you humble yourself and come to God through the cross. There's only one real hero in the Bible. Like, there's people that we can learn from, but it's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Bible commentator David Isaac said that Satan thought that he had won by getting the crowd to crucify Jesus, but the cross turned out to be the instrument of his defeat. Wow. The cross has become the symbol of our salvation. Like, that's, I mean, we take that for granted. That's bizarre. Mm. When people wear a cross as a fashion scene, like, that is bizarre. Mm. It was a symbol of mockery. It was a reproach, right? It's, and... 1 Corinthians 2, Paul's like, man, the Jews demand a sign, the Greeks demand some new wisdom, some new philosophy, but here's Christ crucified. Wow. And nobody wants to say, I follow the guy who was crucified naked on a tree. But he's like, that's your king? Mm. And that God would invert the wisdom of the world and turn it on its head and say, there's, not no, there's no one. There's no one rich or poor. There's nobody religious, irreligious, Jew, Gentile, male, female, young or old, who will ever come to God except for humbling themselves at the foot of the cross and admitting a few basic things. Mm -hmm. I'm a sinner. Mm -hmm. And I need the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And if you can't admit to the fact that you've fallen short of the grace of God, and that through no amount of your striving, through no amount of Bible reading, prayer meetings, perfect church attendance, or your best behavior, right. yeah. will you ever climb a stairwell into heaven? Right. But only when you humble yourself yeah. and come through Jesus will you receive yeah. the grace that saves your soul. Yeah. Paul said something so powerful in 1 Corinthians 2, 8. He said, None of the rulers of this age understood it. What is it? If you read 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, he's clearly talking about the wisdom of the cross. This mystery that was hidden in ages past. That God's plan of redemption looked like his son becoming a man and dying the most excruciatingly painful and humiliating death on the cross. It's like the wisdom of God, like that, it still confounds people today. It's like, that's, it's too simple, it's too ridiculous, it's whatever. That it's, but here it is. Yeah. God hanging exposed yeah. on a tree. And, and, and it's like, man, give me a better, give me something, something different. Like, I want a different, that's cool that that works for you. It's like, this is it. Wow. But he's saying, if any of the rulers of this age had understood it, and I believe that he was talking about the interplay between the natural rulers, the religious leaders, and the political leaders that conspired together and the crowds of people, yeah. which exerted social pressure. But he was also talking about, because don't you know when people are like, is it, is it the enemy? Is it the devil? Is it Satan? Is it demons driving people? Or is it people? And it's like, yes. <laughs> because we are spiritual and physical, material human beings. 
And there's a spiritual component to this world if you have a biblical worldview. But we don't believe that we're robots, like either that a person's like, I'm controlled by the enemy, so therefore he just picks me up and carries me around and does things. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way either. The Holy Spirit moves on your heart, but then you have to actually work in tandem with the Holy Spirit. That's how the spiritual interacts with the natural world, right? We're not purely spiritual people like angels. So I'm getting a little off topic here, but what I'm saying is that when Paul says, if the rulers of this age had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So it's like, Satan was having his heyday thinking like, man, he's like Haman. He's like, we've got the king of glory with his back up against the wall, and we've killed God. And little did he know that as Jesus was being lifted up from the earth, and the innocent was dying in place of the guilty, that his kingdom was being disarmed and dismantled. That Jesus was about to go into the grave, grab the keys to hell, death, and the grave, and ascend... And he made all those demonic hosts watch as he ascended and were leading a crowd of captives. The picture is like back in the day when you would defeat the enemies, you would have all your prisoners of war, like a a trail behind you as you came into the city and they celebrated your victory. And I want you to picture Jesus going up as he led death, hell, and the grave captive. Wow, that's an inversion. But Jesus, like, you don't realize how low Jesus went to get to the cross because you have no concept of how high he came from. You have no concept of heaven. So I I love to preach on the majesty and the humility of God side by side. Because by appreciating his majesty, his incomparable greatness, when you realize that he was born of a virgin and and was an actual baby and walked the earth and washed sinners' feet and then died naked on a tree, The depth of humility that that speaks to is not just like you or I occasionally taking out the trash. (laughs) It's the Lord of glory. The eternal one. Creator of the heavens and the earth. Entering into creation. You cannot fathom that depth of humility. Jesus is the most humble person who's ever lived. And he's greater than all. Salvation, here's the point I'm trying to drive home. Salvation is of God, not of man. This is a theme all throughout the Bible. Who delivers? God delivers. Who brings breakthrough? God brings breakthrough. Who saves people? God. Like, I know that that's so 101. When that gets inside of you, you realize the source of salvation is not me, it's God. It will free you from religion. The source of salvation is of God. God, it's good news. First yeah. Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 says it this way. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that... No one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say it again. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. No one who has ever lived or walked this earth will be able to boast in the presence of God. 
Every single person will praise the lavish grace of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ as we've gathered around his throne. Each of those words that Christ is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, are worthy of meditation, so I'll give you a whole bunch of time that you can spend some time thinking about the way in which Christ is your righteousness, your holiness, and your redemption. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is not from yourselves. We must all humble ourselves to come to God and receive grace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are in touch with their neediness before God. Blessed are those who have learned that they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and that their right standing before God is not based on their own strength. The same grace that saves you and transforms you is also one of the greatest motivators towards continual humility. Andrew Murray said it this way, it is not sin that humbles most, but grace. So I'm not calling you to feel like a worm for the rest of your life, but to continually meditate on the grace of God, which will bring you to greater and greater levels of humility and more and more glory being given to God. One thing that's amazing about the story of Esther is that to this day, many Jews and Christians around the world still celebrate purity. If you can read the story of Esther, it was, a, it was set up in the time to, to remember God's deliverance for the, for the Israelites as they were in exile. What am I saying about this is that we need to set up the words in our life and continually celebrate and return to the joy of our salvation. I love preaching the gospel to already save people to re-evangelize them. Like, Christians, Christians start getting crusty and Christians start getting like... Like bored with the gospel, and I'm like, you need the gospel again. Maybe next time I'll preach it again because, like, you need your heart to be continually unveiled to the glory of God that rests in the face of Jesus. And remember how actually good this message is, right? Everyone's like, oh, man, I heard the gospel that saved you. Like, it's like Paul just is like constantly like, I'm just trying to root you in the gospel and then call you to grow up in. Because right. if there's a problem at the root, then all the fruit up top is going to be You need your lives rooted and established in the gospel truth. Who you are because of what God has done for you. So if we're to grow in Christ's likeness, we must stay in the posture of humility, continue to recognize and admit our need for God's help. Humility is not only the soil that the gospel takes root in, it's also the soil that Christian graces grow. Wow. I'm going to say that again. If you're not humble, you can't get saved because you can't admit your need for Jesus. Yeah. Right? Like that's pretty straightforward. But if we can't stay humble, then the Christian graces, the virtues of Christ, the nature, the character, Christ's likeness, which is discipleship, can't grow in our lives either. It has the same root that the seed takes root in. It's the same soil that the seed takes root in. It's the same soil that needs to stay fertile for the fruit to be produced, right? Yeah. We have to stay humble. I would think about it this way. How do humility, faith, and grace work together? If I'm sick, humility is the willingness to actually admit I'm sick and I need help. Faith is like the process of receiving, like taking a pill, but grace is the constant of that pill that actually makes me well. Wow. Right? And so it's God who gets all the credit for saving me. It's not like I had a lot of faith, therefore God owes me salvation. It's like, no, I just received. Faith is the, is the act of receiving what grace has made available to me through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Right? And I stay in that continual posture of receiving grace from God. And 
hear me out. I think you guys have been around me longer, most of you. I'm not talking about license to sin. That is like, if you think that grace of God means permission to go out and live whatever you want because when you come back, he's going to forgive you, that is a total abuse of an, of an under, proper understanding of grace. Right. Grace is the enabling empowerment of God to change. Right. Yeah. right. And it's the unmerited favor by which God's mercy has come to you and saved you as a gift and not of your own works. But the good news is that when you do stumble and you fall, the grace of God is there to pick you back up and put you back on track and give you the empowerment to change. Right? Um, so, again, uh, prayer is or it's the soil of the Christian graces. Well, I'm getting ready to play here. But prayer is one of the greatest evidences of humility. I'm going to hit a couple Christian disciplines. And I would actually say Christian graces because here's the thing. All the things that I'm about to list, which are things you guys hear about all the time. Your Bible, your pastors are always saying, read your Bible, pray, uh, whatever. And you may hear that and, like, and receive it with guilt. It's like, man, you were just trying to like, add so much like Christian activity to my life. And I'm not so sure how it's changing me. Every one of the things that I'm about to list, which is nothing new, which I would encourage you, don't go look for the new thing. Like, biblical wisdom is return to the ancient past and figure out what people have been doing for centuries to grow close to God and stay with those things. Yeah. Everything I'm about to list, which some would call Christian disciplines, are expressions of humility. And because remember, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Yeah. When we express humility with our actions, we put legs to humility. We walk humbly with our God. We start actually having action to our humility and not just waiting for our feelings to change. We put ourselves in position to receive grace. By walking in expressions of humility, we put ourselves in position to receive more and more grace from God. It's not that we get more and more saved, but that we get transformed by putting ourselves in position to receive the changing power of God. Right? Prayer. Number one, prayer. Prayer is one of the greatest evidences of humility. Because it's often just a simple expression of God help. Yeah. <laughs> Prayer can literally be two words. God help. Yeah. Help me. I don't know what to do. Yeah. God, where are you? Like All of these things are humble expressions. But the life that doesn't pray is a life that believes that it is sufficient within itself. Wow. But we don't want to wait to pray until like everything falls apart. Like We want prayer to be a continue, like our breath. Just to continue, God, I need you, like, God, like, open my eyes, God, make, like, the continual expression of our need for God. Mm. Community is another evidence of humility. It's a place where we admit, I can't do this on my own. When Christians start thinking that all they need is a quiet time, when watching church online, whatever, what they basically are communicating, though maybe not audibly, but with their actions, that I don't need the body of Christ. And, but the opposite is, man, I get in community because I need people to sharpen me. I need people for accountability. I need people to point out my blindness. Man, I need what you carry. I need your enthusiasm for the gospel. Right. Like, Maddie, I need your boldness. Like, I need, like, Kojo, I need your tenderness. Like, I just think, like, man, I need what's in this room. I need the things I don't have. I need the worshipers who can take me in. JP, I don't even know you, bro. Like, people need you to lift those songs to heaven. Patrick, right. we like just even carrying like a keyboard up here. I don't own a keyboard. I need you. Yeah. Like I'm just trying to be like, but seriously, we need each other. Yeah. And being in community expresses that. And guess what happens? 
Nine times out of ten, I get into community and I receive grace from somebody there. It's a word of encouragement. Just tonight, this pastor appreciated. I didn't come in here expecting this. I didn't ask for it and look for it. Our little leadership team like did this beautiful video, gave me a card, and I received grace from their affirmation, grace from their expression of love and encouragement. But it's like, man, when I do the humble thing and I say, I need you guys. When you get vulnerable with somebody or you confess sin and all of a sudden they're like, God forgives you. I love you. I'll pray for you. And I'll hold you accountable. You receive grace that you can't get in yourself. Fasting is an expression of humility. Let me be humble right now and say, I suck at fasting. I don't really like it that much. I do need it. I need it. And I, when I, if, if I do feel called to fast, I say, God, you're going to have to give me grace. <laughs> like, and, like, like, and I mean, like, tangible, like, yes. like, <laughs> like I fill my time so I'm not bored. Like, I'm just trying to be real with y'all. But it's an expression of humility because in denying yourself and willingly embracing weakness, yeah. you are saying, my strength is from God. Yeah. I remember, like, I never really understood fasting. Someone just said, it's, it's like willful weakness. It's embracing weakness. It's, you probably will feel terrible when you fast so that you realize the strength is not me. Yeah. I have a headache and I'm tired. And I feel my headache, like, whatever. Like, but my strength, I'm trying to move the dial for me to God. I'm trying to, get, I'm trying to wean my flesh man to feed my spirit man, right? Yeah. It's an expression of humility. And what happens nine times out of ten is people fast. It's like nothing's happened. Boom. It's yeah. like the grace of God lands on their life. Clarity for a situation. Wow. Breakthrough in something, right? Wow. In this situation, it was the deliverance of a nation. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's so good. Wow. Reading God's word in the right posture is an expression of humility because it admits I don't sit in the driver's seat of my life, but I walk in the light of God's ways. I don't follow my heart. I follow God. Yeah. Yeah. Follow, I follow me, I, I like being me, I like doing the like, lordship of my life, nobody says it that way, but like, when you don't want to submit yourself to God's ways, what you're saying is, my way is better. Yeah. But when you humble yourself and say, like, I'm beneath this, I'm not over this, I'm beneath this, my worldview comes from this, not me, you know, like, me telling God where he's right and wrong, like, that's an expression of humility, and guess what happens when you walk in the light of God's path? Abundance, like strength, health, light for your soul. A lot of messes that you don't need to get into when you walk outside of God's word. That's grace. This is grace when you live by this. The the tangible evidence of your life bearing good fruit and not having unnecessary chaos and mess. That's grace. That's God's tangible grace in your life. I could give you guys a lot more examples, but we'll, we'll stop there. I would say repentance, too. When I can admit that I'm wrong and I need to turn around, that's a tangible expression of humility. Guess what you get when you repent? Forgiveness. And relief. And relief. Yeah. But, like, if we can't repent of our sins, it's the first part of the gospel. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Right? Place your saving faith in Jesus. And it's like... I don't want to talk about repentance to make people feel bad. I don't want to do it because, like, repentance is not just turning from bad. It's turning to God. Every time yeah. you repent, you are moving towards God. Yeah. And in Him is life yeah. and abundance yeah. and, and goodness. Like, it's people are like, oh, we don't talk about repentance here. We don't make people feel bad. But guys, you don't understand repentance. Repentance is leave death and move towards life. Yeah. Move towards God. Like, yeah. you don't talk about repentance. Just tell people to stay in their sin. And, like, you know, like, that's not life. Right. 
tangible expressions of walking in humility become vehicles for you receiving grace. Yeah. Where did we start at? God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Yeah. Wherever we block ourselves and we say, I don't do that, I'm not going to do that, I don't need to read my Bible, I don't need to pray, I don't need that, you know, like, I can be religious, whatever. Man, you may find God resisting you at every point, not because he's mean, but because he wants you to get into a posture of humility so that you can receive. Yeah, it's not that you earn through humility. It's that you actually become available to receive. Let me give you a tangible example. Like, let's imagine, John just you know, believe because we all love each other and nobody here like really dislikes me. But if you did, <laughs> like, it's totally impossible. Like, you know, it's whatever. Like, let's just imagine that like, you, it's like, oh, I wanted to hear reading tonight. Exactly. Like, no, no, why didn't you tell me? Guess what? Your response to me or to any speaker has shut your heart off from receiving. Wow. Yeah. This is what pride does to you. It locks your heart up so that you can't receive. Right. Or if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're like, I'm smarter than you, I'm more intelligent than you, I'm more spiritual than you, whatever. That pride in your relationship locks you off from the benefit of receiving something that God might give you in that relationship. That is so true. That's why Philippians 2 says, humble yourselves with the same mind. Do you think that Jesus didn't know better than everybody the whole time he was walking around? I mean, he's God incarnate. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Wow. Though he was himself God, he considered equality with God, not something to be used to his own advantage, yet he humbled himself. Taking on the form of a human, making himself a servant, even dying of criminal's death, like dying for people who were utterly unworthy of it. Yeah. Wow. Taking up your cross may look like humbling yourselves in relationships and valuing other people above yourself. And what I believe will happen in that is that tangible grace may come to you in those relationships. I remember, for example, just real quick, there is a girl that I dated, sorry, Courtney, there's never been a date before you. <laughs> had something called prader willi syndrome. It's like severe autism with like hormonal imbalances. And it's just, it's hard. And but I spent a lot of time with her brother, and I remember we'd go to the pool, we'd go to movies together, and I could have been like, man, I got nothing to learn from this guy. You know, like, mental capacity of probably my son, and, you know, can't physically take care of himself. I'm like, gosh, you can't tangible to get closer. There's grace. Mm. And the love of God, there's ways that he just enjoyed life that I didn't enjoy. You know what I mean? Like, just yeah. simple, play, like, sin. It's like, if you will humble yourself, people, like, God will give you grace, but if you're prideful, you shut yourself off for the ability to receive. Wow. Right? And so, I want to call you again. The places that cause us to express humility become the same places God releases grace in our lives. We're not called to live out our Christian faith in our own strength, but in God's grace. The Christian disciplines are, again, not always ways to manipulate God, and they're not ways to earn from Him. But ways to express humility and dependence upon God and receive grace. So what we're going to do in this next time, I'm going to pray for you guys. We're going to break into groups. And I'll set up the questions and the leaders will remind you of these questions if you forget. Number one, I never take for granted that even if I see someone's face for like 10 months straight or 10 years, I never take for granted that you know Jesus. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. Only you and the Lord know. But there could